pronounce your name correctly for me? Monica Suda. And you are currently a, a, a creative coach, I guess is probably the most overarching terminology, right? Yes. So how did you get there? So I'm always interested in like how people have come into the creative fields in the first place. Were your parents creative? Was it some educational assistance that sort of led you down the creative path? So like what was your childhood introduction to this? Well, my introduction was clearly my mother, who was an artist. She was an actress and she was a wild card, really. She worked with Bertolt Brecht and Erwin Piscato in, in Berlin of the 20s. And she was uh, Brecht's favorite student because she was an Aquarian, short hair, uh, wearing pants and having very articulate, outspoken, political on the left, etc. And so I grew up with that whole idea of what happened in the 1920s in Berlin. I was born in Berlin, but my mother said to me early on, get out of Germany, get out of Europe as soon as you can. So I studied languages. I studied French in Lausanne and English in London, and I got out. I got into New York at a time when the economy was very strong. And before I knew it, I landed at Magnum Photos, and I got introduced to photojournalism, the civil rights movement, etc. And I became friends with Ernst Haas, met Inga Morath and Arthur Miller. And uh, it was a very crazy time. Well, hold on one second. Slow down a little bit. So like, are you, at this time when you're introduced to all these things at Magnum and all these people, are you a photographer? So like, what's your role in this? Or are you editing at that I time? I came out of publishing based on my publishing experience. I was taken on by Magnum. It's Ernst Haas who taught me photography. <laughs> Great teacher. Yeah. Yes. And he was one of the few Magnum photographers, as I recall, who did not take himself so deadly seriously. He had a wonderful sense of humor, had a very thick Austrian accent, and he made wonderful slideshows, one of which, as I recall, was our Death in Venice with Mahler Music. <laughs> I would not assume many Magnum photographers have great senses of no, humor for some No, reason. a lot of them did not. I was soon to discover that. <laughs> Uh, Magnum was actually a very difficult place to work. It was like um, a small pond with about 20 sharks moving around. <laughs> Were they very competitive towards one oh, another? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. Because I had this feeling, and I've said this before on the podcast, that like I think f among the creatives, you know, so like you take musicians and writers and all the different creative people, I feel like photographers are some of the most competitive of the creative people because, well, I don't know really why, actually, in all reality. Well, I, maybe that's true, but I've also known writers and filmmakers to be competitive. I find they'd be jealous and envious, but I'm not sure about competitive. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, I moved on from Magnum and got into Time Life. Uh, met a friend on Fifth Avenue who said, oh, they're starting a big new book series. It's on foods of the world. And she introduced me to the series editor and I got hired on the spot. And the next thing I knew, because I spoke German, I got assigned the German food book. That was not my favorite because I would have loved to work on the French food book, but that was already in progress. <laughs> so there I was, and I met the life photographer who was based in Los Angeles in Germany with an assistant and driver. And for three months, we traveled across Germany photographing people traditions, beer halls, whatever. And I had spent about several months researching German food, the history and sociology of German food. And then I wrote a concept for the uh, photography. And then I wrote a picture script. And then, then I wrote an itinerary. And all of this was approved very easily. And there I was in Germany. <laughs> and we had the most wonderful trip. I mean, this could never happen today. Three months of travels. And it was one adventure after the other from Berlin to the Alps. And we even wanted to get into Eastern Germany, which was then the DDR in German. And, uh, and the authorities never said no, but they also didn't say yes. So we ended up stuck in a Berlin castle in the Grunewald for two weeks waiting, which was not unpleasant per se. And then we decided to just move on. So we did not include Eastern Germany, but we did include everything from, from the Hanseatic trader traditions to a little woman near Stuttgart making sauerkraut by hand. Absolutely everything. And every photograph in that book is a story because I kind of um, figured out how to present these traditions. I found a, a grandmother and I found a little girl and I took them into the Black Forest to gather mushrooms, <laughs> which is one of the traditions years ago, etc. Anyway, it was a dreamlike project, and I did have a few of those in my life, which was really great. And looking back, none of it could ever happen today. I finally, from Time Life, I got invited to be the director of photography of the first big travel magazine in the U.S., called Holiday, which was part of the Saturday Evening Post family of publications. It was an ancient tradition in the U.S., and unfortunately, the Saturday Evening Post came first, belly up, and then finally Holiday as well. But I had the last of the golden days at Holiday magazine. They called me Barbarella because I was wearing mini skirts and little booties. <laughs> Those were the days. And the highlight was I worked with some of the best photographers in the world. I had lunch with Andre Cortege, 
I worked with Diane Arbus, Lee Friedlander, Joel Merowitz, Gary Winograd, and many Magnum photographers. And I assigned Arnold Newman a cover story on San Francisco, which ultimately led me to move there. And Holiday went under after just a little bit. I had just gotten all of the art department organized and got everything squared away. And then the magazine went under, sadly. So I took off to study Spanish in Mexico, took a break from the media. As one does, yes. As one does. And this turned into two years of travel on the road, France, Spain, Morocco, and finally Southeast Asia, which gave me a very good perspective on the media and my place in it. <laughs> which your next place, I think, is the one that fascinates me the most. Because th is this the point where you then went to Rolling Stone? That's exactly right. Yeah. I wanted <laughs> I wanted to be in San Francisco. And so while San Francisco only had one magazine and that was Rolling Stone. <laughs> and an the, excellent magazine to want to be in though. Well, at that time it was in its teenage age. <laughs> it had not turned professional yet. But you know, everybody was deeply into drugs and they called me prima donna from the Big Apple, because I was the only professional there <laughs> for a while. <laughs> Annie Leibovitz had just started her career at Rolling Stone, and I was assigned to be in charge of investigative reporting. What happened next was the first big story that turned national was the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> Oh, what a story, by the way, the Symbionese Liberation Army. <laughs> Good God, what a story. And as it turned out later on, uh, Will Hurst, a cousin of Patty Hurst, became co-publisher of Rolling Stone. And I worked with him on a cover for a fishing story for Outside magazine. <laughs> and he was on the masthead of Rolling Stone for quite a while. Rolling Stone, Annie Leibovitz, Patty Hearst, and the next big story was done by Howard Cohn on the uh, plutonium work of Karen Silkwood, who also made headlines, national headlines, uh, who had gathered information against a company who had no safety precautions for the workers and had illegal ongoings, and she was on the way to meet a reporter from the New York Times when she got into an accident, quote unquote, was killed, and her information was lost. It was disappeared. That was the story of Karen Hill Silkwood, and I was so involved in it that I decided to do a little video on Karen Silkwood and there's an excellent movie about that entire situation. Exactly. Well. And, and and I think it was uh, Barbara Streisand who was in it, strangely enough. Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. So that was that. After that, I got involved with Rolling Stone Press. And I did a wonderful big picture book on the 1960s, the whole decade in black and white photographs. 
with interviews by those who had been there. Culture, politics, the war in Vietnam, op and pop art, fashion, and more. It was a great experience, and I spent a year gathering rare and unpublished photographs for the book, and I had a watch line, and I talked to everyone who was involved in the 60s on the telephone, sometimes till late in the evening. <laughs> it was fascinating. Today, such a book would be done in two months. I spent a year. <laughs> Those are the times. The book release for the 1960s was celebrated at Club 54 in New York. <laughs> Great and club also, there you go. It was a very glitzy, crazy party, and all the players and contributors were invited, including Vietnam veteran Ron Kovic, who came in his wheelchair. Right, born on the 4th of July also. Right, right, yeah. right. Lots of great movie references coming out of yes. your life. Yeah. <laughs> So after that, Jan Wenner and Will Hurst decided to start a new magazine called Outside. And I became the picture editor. And I worked with all the great nature and outdoor photographers of the West, including Galen Rohl, who sadly died in a plane crash. I worked with the charismatic Peter Beard whom I met at the opening of his elephant show in New York City. I think it was called The Death of the Elephants or something. That was the first time that news got out about the disappearance of the animals in Africa. Yeah, he was very charismatic. I remember that. <laughs> Huge fan of his work, actually. Yeah, interesting. He had an interesting life and so sad. He died in a park not long ago his afghani wife had not heard from him i think they lived separately and he was lost and then he was found a few weeks later he had died in a park while he was on a walk so not a bad way to go actually i'd rather die on a walk than in a hospital <laughs> indeed yes there's not yeah I would much rather die doing what I love than waiting mm -hmm. to die somewhere. Exactly. So that was Rolling Stone. And I got kind of mad at myself for sitting in this little cubicle with neon light while all these photographers came in tanned and with the air of the desert and the mountains and I thought, shit, what am I doing in this cubicle? doesn't feel like I'm in the right movie. <laughs> uh, Rolling Stone and a cubicle with fluorescent light don't feel like they should be in the same sentence. No. And it, yet that was what it was. It was a huge warehouse and they turned it into little cubicles. And yeah, also Jan Werner was not exactly a very democratic boss. He had a gigantic office. And everybody else had little cubicles. <laughs> Not unfamiliar. As most people who put the word boss in front of their names do, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Outside was sold to a company in Colorado. And that was the end of that. So I started my consultancy for publishers, writers, and photographers. 
Monica Suda and Associates. And that was actually my cats originally. <laughs> but I did hire associates as needed for various projects. One of these projects was a CD-ROM um, on the tragic story of Tina Modotti. It is a tragic story. Remember indeed. her? Yes. Her yeah. art, her relationship with Edward Weston, her friendship with the great Mexican artists of her time, and her left-wing politics. And it was not meant to be because the CD-ROM platform gave way to other technologies before I could get it off the ground. <laughs> I was going to say, you're kind of dating the project by calling yeah. it CD-ROM uh, Well, Yeah, and because the good thing about a CD-ROM, you could have different databases with information. So you had the personal story, you had the art story, you had the politics, you had her life in San Francisco, her family in Italy. It was wonderful. I wish it was still there. It was a great way to tell a story. Anyway, that was the end of that. One of many interesting projects that never made it off the ground. <laughs> I don't even have a CD drive anymore. It's kind of sad in some ways, but yeah. Yeah, I just got a new iMac and it no longer has a port for it either. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was that. And then I got involved in another project. Friends had started a theater festival in San Francisco, an international theater festival. And I got inspired to create an international cultural exchange program. I went to Europe and I gathered letters of support from all the European ministries of culture. And I found out they had lots of money available for this. It was an absolute and mind-boggling insight because in the U.S. there's no money for anything in culture or art. So and that's why I love Europe so much. Yes, yes. So I thought, wow, this is great. So I got all these letters of support and I came back to San Francisco and then, a sad story, our own mayor of San Francisco, that was Diane Feinstein at the time, was far more interested in commerce with China than an international cultural exchange program. So that got killed, too. It was a dream project. Now, wait, what, what's the time frame on this? What, what era were you in in San Francisco? It was still a long time ago. Um, I've had a long life in, in the media. <laughs> well, I was in San Francisco for a couple of years. That's why I'm sort of wondering, when were you there? I think it was in the late 80s. Meanwhile, I was working in my consultancy. I was doing all kinds of book projects and publications. And after a while, after some years, I felt like I needed a change. And I heard about coaching in a seminar called Life Design. And I decided to take the training at the Coaches Training Institute in San Rafael, California. And it was a very creative, Carl Jung-inspired, holistic approach to life coaching. In 2000, I started my practice, my coaching practice, uh, working with photographers, filmmakers, and artists. And since I had worked with artists and photographers all my life, I must say I have an amazing 
tolerance and patience for artists and hardly any patience for technology, but endless patience for people who have big blind spots. <laughs> I'm always interested in people who have big blind spots and they have also great talents. So that that's... I resemble that remark. Wait, what are you talking about blind spots? Artists often have big blind spots. They cannot see some of the quote-unquote realities of life. I, I feel like my wife should be listening to this, but go on. <laughs> well, you know, I myself am one of these, and I have, I have great sympathy for people like that, and I always realize it makes me feel more secure with who I am because everybody I work with has similar blind spots. So we're in a community of people with blind spots, but at the same time, my focus is on the creative identity. And that's what I started working with, with my artists. I tried to figure out what the essence of their work was and try to zoom in on that essence and then wrote an artist statement, edited their work with that focus and a compelling website, and finally a book, an exhibition, awards, etc. And that was very, very satisfying, inspiring, ever interesting. And that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. It is probably the most satisfying work ever that I've done. None of the projects, you know, the, the projects were all of the jobs I had were interesting, but in terms of the rewards, it is so much more satisfying to work with people and see them succeed and see them overcome some of their blind spots or making progress in new ways. It's just the most exciting thing I know. I love this terminology of blind spots. I want to hear more about like, so give an example of what you mean. Like I'm trying to think like, I'm quite certain I have many of them and I know many artists and creative people that have what I believe you're talking about, but give me a good, like better specific definition of a blind spot. Well, just what comes to my mind just this minute as we speak is, you know, when you when you want to be a dancer and you're on the dance floor, you have to be aware of the dancers around you so that you don't barge into them, right? And the same is true for artists in the art world. And artists often do not pay attention to what's going on around them. And that is one of the biggest blind spots altogether because if you don't know what's happening around you, how can you be a successful actor on the scene? It's a legitimate position. I mean, and it's a it's a difficult position because like yes. on the one hand, on the one side, that feels like the idea because I'm I'm a true like fine art snob. So bear with me. I would say that a little bit of that is like, is that that sort of pandering a little bit sort of like oh i need to know what else is going on so that i can make work that fits with whatever the no not, conversation no no is. no 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 it's not okay. about that 
Don't get me wrong. It's not about fitting in. It's paying attention to what other people are doing so that you can be more original, not fitting in. More original. In other words, it should give you the confidence to be even more original. I got it. That makes much more sense. So you're saying yeah. basically know what everybody else is doing so that you're not copying them, basically. It's almost like politics. No, it's not like politics because politicians pay attention to what's going on and then they say what people want to hear. That's not what I'm talking about. You're right. Not politics. No, but it's good. We do need to know. I mean, like I, you know, I was a photographer for, I don't know, 25, 20 something years. And to a certain extent, like with the income of like Instagram and social media and all this kind of stuff, like I sort of put my camera down. I was like, I'm not sure what I could offer that's new or unique among the, you know, millions and millions of images taken every day. And so, you know, paying attention to what else is going on sometimes can be depressing. Yes, I agree. I agree. That is a problem. And you do need a muse by your side in order to hold on to your own spirit uh, if you want to make it (laughs) oh yeah don't kid yourself i'm still making creative works i'm just not doing it with photography at this point because right it's it's really hard being a photographer in the old days pre 90s even it was somewhat easier to be original because there simply just was not a lot of you know high caliber photographic work in the world whereas now there is such a glut of I agree. photographic yeah. work that it is incredibly difficult to be unique and stand out in the crowd now. Yeah, you know, basically uh, you have to be truly original and it has to be almost a kind of a monstrous kind of originality. You know, I'm thinking of Orson Welles just as I'm talking. Orson Welles was one of those people a super original thinker and artist. (laughs) So that's one of the problems in today's photography. As you say, it is endlessly competitive. And right now I'm working with a photographer who was a landscape photographer. I'm helping turning his work into a fine art about geological rock formations that are surreal in the spirit of Max Ernst. They are miniscapes instead of landscapes, and they are surreal. They are suggestive of faces, masks, expressions. And so we just found a great designer. Uh, We are re-editing his book. He got an introduction by André Codrachou, whom I think you might know, uh, who likes surreal art. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, here's another example of a photographer who is now trying to break that glass ceiling, and it is not easy. Well, I mean, that point of like, you know, basically being the first to do something is also a big difficulty because like, basically it sounds bad, but like the first, you know, everybody remembers the first person to do something, but nobody remembers the second person who did something. That's (laughs) right. 
and, and that's hard because there's a lot of like, I'll admit, like there's a series of work I did in my career that I used a similar technique to Idris Khan. Like I loved his layering technique uh, that he did early on in his career. And I then took the technique and used it, but I did change the subject matter completely. Everything was else is very different, but I still have to sort of pay homage and sort of openly say, I'm taking this technique from somebody else because I mean, it's, I'm not being a hundred percent original. And the idea that in this day and age with the amount of exposure we have to every other artist in the world, it's really hard to come up with that original technique or not even technique, but idea. You're absolutely right. And I, you know, I go to photo festival in Al. I've been there for the last 12 years and I see what people are trying to do to overcome that obstacle. And there are some interesting things, but some of them are really very, very strained attempts at being original. <laughs> and some of them are so conceptual that you lose interest. They are so academic that you go, ah, no, I don't even want to look at this. <laughs> It is, that's a very difficult line to ride because like you want to make something new, but you don't want to push it too far so that it, you lose your audience basically. Yes. And, and that's hard because like I, I'm, you know, just like every other creative person, like I have the habit of I'll go too far and I realize, oh crap, I went too far. I lost my audience, you know, or the, the work failed in, in it, in it's what it was trying to achieve. Well, give me an example of what, what, what going too far would mean for you. Well, I mean, going back to what you just said, which is basically, I have this sort of thing let's see in my in my opinion which it's truly an opinion on this because i know many people differ with me on this is i still think that any form of an art should somehow be we'll call it quote unquote like attractive visually compelling visually engaging and all this kind of stuff so when the concept is more interesting than the imagery itself i think yeah. you have missed missed the mark Yes, yes. And there's lots and lots of that all over Europe. And the reason is... It's a very and, European thing, Yes, isn't it? and the reason is because, you know, the bureaucrats that are in charge of the money don't have a lot of imagination. <laughs> and they are the ones that decide what subjects will be funded. And so artists have to become very pragmatic and it, the conceptual ideas are often extremely modest <laughs> modest in imagination <laughs> well and then i've also noticed this which is a transitional thing because you and i have both lived in america and in europe so this is great because this is a good like we can do a comparison kind of thing i was trained in the arts in america but i now live in europe in america it's very much you make your work you produce it you hang it on the wall or make a book out of it whatever and then you sell it and then you take the money and then you reinvest and make more work very capitalistic idea in europe it's more of a you write a proposal so no images are made no no nothing's been created you write a proposal and then that proposal gets funded and then you create the work and there's no need for the work to be sold. 
and it goes to many funded. hands, Matt. It goes to many hands before it gets approved. That's the other thing. <laughs> but, but it's already been funded, so there's no need for them to make it like, yeah, yeah. quote unquote, like attractive or beautiful yeah. or engaging yeah. or anything like, because it's already been paid for. Yeah, Whereas yeah. in America, the need is to make something with an emphasis on being able to be sold. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, it's already been paid for. So there's no need for it to be engaging or attractive or anything because it's already funded. Yeah. And they can get a little um, navel gazing kind of project. <laughs> I know. I'm a professor also. And like, the, uh, I hate academic work because it's like what we call like inside baseball like it, it's artwork yes. made for art professionals only yes, yes, and yes. there's a huge barrier to entry for anybody who doesn't understand everything about that work by you know research and intellectual pursuits and all this kind of crap and that's an issue in and of itself it's also academia and arts in the academics but yes 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 <laughs> I totally agree with you on that. And at some point, I developed a course in San Francisco called From the Classroom to the Real World, because when photographers study photography, they have no idea how to survive in the real world. They get none of it. In fact, a lot of the photography schools, including, what is it, Brooks Institute in California, they propagate illusions about photography and survival in that industry. And so this course was really about what you never learned at school and uh, how to survive in the real world and guerrilla tactics, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> the, the photographic industry is, even to this day, and maybe even because of social media and all the stuff these days, is, is so romanticized. Like yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's fun. It, it's luxurious. It's exotic. It's all these. And I'm like, no, you sit in front of your computer 90% of the time That's just right. editing or <laughs> yeah. emailing or writing proposals. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, if you're lucky, maybe 20% of your work week would actually be behind a camera. That's right. It's a little bit like Hollywood. It's glamour and it's, and you know, the real stuff is 10% of your actual and, and the rest is pushing papers. I know. And it's so sad because I'm of the romantic uh, style like that. I came into the creative fields looking for the cafe lifestyle, smoking cigarettes, talking <laughs> yeah. art, you know, the 1920s yes, Paris yes, kind of yes, feel. Of that, that's, that's my dream, like being being poor and a drug addict and like yeah. you know, just living the life. And, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I did some of that at, in my life. But yeah. anyways... It's it's unfortunately a gone world now. <laughs> sadly, yes. sadly. I've been reading about the Paris years, which is such a wonderful period. And there was a community of artists, visual arts, writers, poets, musicians. Everyone got together and exchanged ideas that no longer happens. Yeah, that's the thing that I feel like we have lost in a modern yes, society. Yes, yes. That sense of a community. Yes, everybody is a specialist in their own little niche. 
and you know, uh, for better or for worse, and I think for worse. <laughs> it, it's hard because, like, I am when I go to make work, I rarely so. I, let's say, as a photographer, like when I went to make work, I almost never was inspired by photographers. Like I was always inspired by writers and filmmakers and musicians and, yes. and painters and printmakers and any any other medium other than photography. Because, you know, if if you're a photographer inspired by photography, then you're just sort of like you're being cyclical on the whole thing. And you need to be more expansive and more in you know interpretive. Well, you need to break boundaries. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's get to some of the stuff that you do. So like when I thought about talking with you, I was like, okay, you know what I really want to know is like, what are some of the definitions of, of like the, of, I call it success, but like, what are goals or things that people come to you and say, like, I want to achieve this, that is like a very common thing in the industry. Actually, the people who come to me rarely say I want this. If they have a laser sharp definition of what they want, they are often quite successful and they don't come to me or they come to me for different issues. But what the problem is, is that the goal is not clearly defined. They know what they don't want very As clearly. <laughs> I think you've just titled my, my biography there. <laughs> Yes, and so that's the easy part. Then uh, there is some archaeology that takes place on my part. I start digging for what I call the gold, and I try to separate the straw from the gold, trying to find the creative identity. What makes this person special? And it has to do with the loves, the forgotten loves sometimes, the passion, ideals, the dreams, or the forgotten dreams. And so people come to me and they have already covered up their dreams. They've already tried to be realistic. And by doing that, they lose the little bit of originality that they had. So it's going back to the roots. What brought you to photography? What were your fantasies and dreams and ideas and pictures? And then I try to encourage and I try to help them amplify what they have repressed. Okay, so in my mind, I'm an extremely rational person in many ways. So like in my mind, if I were going to come to you, let's say, and hire you as my coach, I imagined, and so please tell me if I'm wrong on this, I imagine like I would say, okay, I've got a book I want to produce or, or sort of some quantifiable, tangible result that I'm go I want to achieve. And then I would come and hire you to assist me in all the different components of sort of putting it all together and doing all that. And you're telling me that's oftentimes that's not how people come to you. People come to you sort of like, I'm lost or I have creative block. Please just help me through this kind of thing. No, no. There are people like the one I just mentioned uh, with the rock art. He already knew what he wanted, but he was 
in the wrong movie with the whole thing. I had to, I had to help for my biography, but go. (laughs) I had to help him create a totally new language to enter the art world with. I had to totally rewrite his website, rewrite his bio, rewrite his artist statements. And he didn't, he was still on a different level with it all. And he didn't, couldn't see it. And there was one of his blind spots. Mine too. Uh, My biggest weakness is by far any sort of text that comes around the creative industries. Because like most of us came into, let's say photography. We came into photography because we're probably not very good writers and we could express our ideas or represent our ideas effectively through a photograph. And so the idea that we're supposed to write is constantly annoying me to no end. Because of course I'm looking at grants and residencies and even book, book publishing options and things like this. And like it's always Please give us a written statement explaining that. And I'm just like, I know, and it, it, you know, and as they ask for, I looked at some of that. The way they ask for it, it is absolutely ridiculous. They bring it to the level of absurdity. The one that I really hate is where they go, give us a synopsis of your art practice in 250 words or less. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I've got 25 years. Like, right. what, how how am I supposed to put that in 20? I had one that even said like 250 characters, including spaces. <laughs> and I'm just like, but, how uh, am I supposed to do that? As I said, these are Kafkaesque desk workers that you're dealing with there. <laughs> No, but it's really sad. Like I actually recently had a guest that came up with the greatest analogy for this, which is when artists make artwork, we are now currently expected to also be able to write eloquently about our work. However, a writer is not expected to paint a painting about their work. No, (laughs) no. So like, why are they making us do things that are sort of outside of our realm of of expertise, which is to make beautiful photographs or compelling or expressive photographs and make us write about them? And I I just have a huge disdain for that. Yes. Well, what happens is artists hire writers to do the job. And those that can do that, find the right writer, will be more successful than others who can't write about them. And in fact, when people are asked to explain their work, that's a really crazy situation because no artist should have to explain their work. If you don't get it, just leave it, you know? I love it. But how do we find writers? Like, cause I've, I've hired a few curators over the eras to do like things, but they end up being like overly intellectual and academic almost in many ways. And I'm always looking for like a writer that could be like just expressive about what I'm trying to share. And I find it very hard to find a good writer. Yes. It's not easy. Um, I do a little bit of writing with the people I work with. And the reason it's easier for me to write about their work is because I've been working with them for a year or two. I know exactly who they are and what they're trying to do. And so I found myself writing their bios and their artist statements. I don't write in an academic style. I keep it short, but I try to get to the heart of it. 
Well, like I do portfolio reviews for Lens Culture on the, uh, anonymously on their website, so nobody yes, knows yes. about it. But, yes, yes, and I've done thousands of them, and I've read so, I've read some of those from Lens Culture. <laughs> it may have been mine, but um, yeah, I mean, some some of them are. You, you mean you've read some of the people who submit the work, or some of the reviews? Both, <laughs> both. Well, I hope I, I hope they were good, the reviews. <laughs> well, the reviews, in some cases, they did not have a very good mastery of the English language. And I could tell that there was a scenario at the back of their mind, you know, some kind of thing they absorbed in art school. You could hear a certain scenario. <laughs> well, I'll admit, it's hard. Like, when I started doing it, I probably was like that. Like, I mean, because, you know, you, you just sort of, you you have your own perspective as a reviewer or as a person looking at work. But then at a certain point, you have to transition and be like, okay, it's not about what I want to say to somebody, but it's what they need to hear. So right. like, what's the thing they're exactly. missing? Exactly. And, and that's a, a difficult transition sometimes to make as a reviewer is like, yes. it's not about me. No. It's not about my history or experiences or knowledge. It's about them and what they need. But back to the point is, is like they are horrible at writing artist statements, bios, all this kind of stuff. Like I out of like the 3,500 reviews I've done, I can only say like I read good text with it maybe three to five times. Like that's it. Like it's really hard. I agree. To do good I think text. that's bravely modest of yours to say that because, you know, good artists and even Kachi Bersant said, you know, out of a hundred photographs, maybe there's three good ones. You know, that's honesty. I would love three good photographs out of a hundred. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Well, he didn't take a lot of photographs. He waited until he had that magic moment. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. All right. So what are some of the things? So you have, you know, decades of experience in coaching and working with artists. What are some of the things that we do wrong the most? Oh, I don't think there is a general thing. Everybody is different, which makes it interesting for me. And, you know, there are many different personalities, but my job is to help them with what they don't do well, where they are not seen clearly, or I help them create better work. For instance, I had a Spanish client who came to me with a fairly good project, but given the hundreds of thousands of projects out there, it was not successful. And I worked with her for about six months until I started encouraging her to do collages. And together we discovered that she had an amazing talent and imagination. And now she could do anything. And it became more and more original. And she's still in her beginnings of this, but I realized this is her path and she knows it. And so, you know, there's lots of different, each person is different and each, each talent is different. And um, it keeps me on my toes. I learn a lot every time. I learn and learn and learn. 
but I also have very good intuition. So I sense where the truly powerful path is. I help them find that path, but I have a good sense of it. So sometimes I throw out something that's totally off the wall and they go, oh, and there is a new direction. It is hard because we, as creative people, get very myopic. We, we get focused. We're like, I need to achieve this. And we oftentimes will disregard any other potential option. Like, I, I've got this story like years ago that my professor, he, he kept telling me not to do something. He's like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And I'm like, no, 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 damn it. I want to do that. That's my thing. It's my, it's my oeuvre. It's my genre. It's my style. And, and like five years later, I was like, Oh yeah, no, that was horrible. <laughs> so should have listened to that professor. Like we 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 get so egotistical and so like selfish. I'm not sure what the right word is, but like we get so f- focused on our on our individual idea that we oftentimes don't open ourselves up to other potential ideas, and that's a very hard thing to try and sort of you know self regulate. You can't, and ultimately, my viewpoint is. You know, we all are on this path of learning in life, and it's part of the learning to take a long turn. You cannot become wise or accomplished without taking wrong turns. They're part of the path. Agreed. And, you know, Beckett said, uh, fail, fail better, fail more, because it's part of the path to accomplishment and to true mastery. Agreed. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of like not, I come from, uh, my undergraduate is in photography, but my master's is in new genre art, which I love because it sounds really pompous and arrogant, but <laughs> it's, it basically is the idea of like, you come up with a, a strong idea and you use whatever medium is necessary for it kind of thing. So you, so everything uh-huh. is on the table. And I love that because it, to me, that's more just talking about how to express yourself through art. And it's very hard because you brought up earlier about like being overly specialized these days. And I feel like a lot of the, some of the stronger, more engaging artists these days are using multiple mediums or transitioning to different mediums versus like saying, I'm a photographer, so therefore I must always use photographic medium, basically, and never even venturing into any other potential opportunities. And I find that a bit difficult. Well, it's actually no longer possible. A lot of photographers are using photography as a tool, and they are working from there. And, you know, Dwayne Michaels did that light years ago with his writing that he added. So storytelling is always good and will always bring a good audience if you know how to do it, (laughs) whichever way you do it. Well, it's interesting you bring up storytelling because that's a... A you know sort of vernacular. I mean, in f- photography, is it important to be like storytelling? Is that something that's still at the foremost forefront? Because you know, in the old no, days, it's not. It's not. <laughs> not in Europe. No. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to it, our it's, Europe. Bashing. In contemporary photography, no, it's definitely not. Not part of it. 
not part of academia. <laughs> well, well, but the, but I use the terms like there should be a strong story behind. Like so, the the, yes. the the series, the idea of the work should have a strong underlying story. If it's not absolutely even literally, yes. you know, sort of visual storyline kind of thing. Yes, but even that is really hard. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I, I want to start talking about something that's easy. Is there anything that's easy? Well, you know, when you go back to the main human themes, I think it's powerful. I think it's always interesting. And I think they're very good stories. However, it's not in fashion right now. The trends are... You know, for a long time, the trends were empty parking lots in contemporary photography. <laughs> and, and it's just evolved from there just a little bit by now. <laughs> Sadly, I have done the empty parking lot photos myself. So, yeah. <laughs> and then the ruins, the abandoned castles and, you know. And abandoned factories and the bechers, my God, decades of bechers. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's funny enough, like uh, the first set of photos I ever did in high school was uh, we broke into an abandoned building and and went in and photographed in this old abandoned building. <laughs> so, like, Yeah, of course. It's part of the course in a way. But photography got stuck in it, I mean, many years. Uh, it was just an obsession. It did. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like what they call it, like relic porn at this point. or <laughs> Dilapidation porn. Like it's, it's really, I mean, it's some of it's gorgeous, but it's overdone at this point. Yes. And some photographers really enjoy the technical quality of it. And it can be an over-glorification of photography because the human element is dead. Well, that's another thing that I like have an issue with that I see in a lot of photographers is, is they often overly romanticize or overly like they make it feel more important, which is the technical aspect, the, the yes. techniques like when I look at a series of work, I'll even say like when I go into a gallery and I look at an artwork or if I go into a book and I open it up and I look at it, I don't care how it was made. I care why it was made. Yes. But photographers love to talk about how it was made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I totally agree with you. And it's a complete bore. <laughs> And I don't deal with it. You know, this is not part of my coaching practice. The technical part is not part of it. I may suggest look into other techniques. You know, have you tried some older techniques? Go into it, look at it, but I don't deal with it. It's not part of my uh, consultancy. Well, I just find it that a lot of, uh, to a certain extent, it's like rank amateur photographers sort of fetishize the techniques over the sort of what I call the why. Like, why have you created this work and why should I as a viewer care about it? Right. And that's what they're confronted with at school. The instructor may ask them that. And I think it's a phase 
And then the ones that cannot move on from that phase, they are going to be unknown thousands and millions that don't make it. Sadly, there are many of those, yes. Well, you know, our culture does not promote ideas. You know, we are in a culture that's kind of binary is what I call it. It's digital. It's people are sitting at the computer way too much. It kills the imagination. Well, not only that, but like, I feel like a lot of like, I look around at like residencies and grants and, and other sort of competitions and stuff like this. And one of the things that I'm not a huge fan of in the industry these days is that a lot of them have themes. Like, so they're like, this this residency is all about ecology, or this is all about ethnicity, or this is all about gender or age, or do what they create all these things. Like, I really wish that there would just be like a project out there that just says, we are going to fund the project that do we do. Your thing. Yeah, the, do your the one thing. That does the best <laughs> quality work at whatever yes. they want to do. Yes. And you know, that's again, it's these functionaries that are in charge of the money that set those kinds of uh, limitations. <laughs> I don't understand. I, I don't remember it being as common, you know, when I was in school and stuff, but like, it seems like these days there's much more minutia. Like they, they really are like fixating on these little tiny segments of the industry saying like, we only work with ecological this, or we only work with gender identity, this like kind of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and, and as much as I think all of those topics are great and should be made work about, it also shuts the door on all kinds of other amazing things. Cause like, I yes. feel like there's lots of amazing artists that basically fall in the gaps between all of these different things. Totally. Totally. Yes, absolutely. And there is this marvelous quote by Ernst Haas about, and I, I'm very bad at remembering how it goes, but two uh, opposing dynamics creating a spark. That's the idea of it. And that is exactly what you're talking about. What's missing is, you know, creating a tension between one thing and another thing and finding a new spark basically yeah i love it all right is there any topic that you want to talk about that i didn't ask you about because i can only do so much research so like any topic that i didn't even know to ask you about no i think i've told you pretty much what i would like to add in terms of careers like mine is that a lot of my great jobs were accidents. Now, of course, I am someone who does not believe in accidents. I call them synchronicity. But, you know, these things just happened. They came to me. And today, unfortunately, that is much more difficult than it was then. So, you know, I got my job at Magnum through a friend who was going to Paris. She said, you want my job? You can have it, uh, you know, and I got, I was in the hospital at the time. I got the job on the phone. That's how easy it was. And then I ran into this woman on Fifth Avenue and I got the job at Time Life. And then my boyfriend ran into an art director he knew 
And he was looking for a picture editor, and I got my job at Holiday Magazine, director of photography, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> and, you know, this is a world that has gone. I think it's no longer so easy to find. And, of course, um, the dream jobs are not the same anymore. Nobody is going to send somebody for three months on location <laughs> or nobody will give you a whole year to work on a book project. Well, and that that whole topic, which is something actually I forgot to ask you about, which is basically the change in the speed of the industry, I feel like is detrimental. It's not just the speed. It's the nature of the industry. You know, I think everything has gotten to be much more perfunctory, more about money, less about creativity, less about individuals, less about ideas. I think we're due for some major changes in society altogether. Our systems are not what they're supposed to be, whether it's education or the healthcare system or, or the banking system. We're, we're really in a, in a time of great upheaval because everything has to be reimagined, redesigned. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking in the photographic world, like specifically, I think of social media and Instagram, obviously, because the... For me, like my work these days, like it can take me three months to six months to complete a single piece of art. Whereas like social media expects you to be posting every day or every week or, you know, right. you know and I'm like, and I, to a certain extent, I feel like it's watering down a lot of people's creative endeavors. Well, of course it is. Yes, of course. Because, well, because we're seeing a lot of work but not in it, but you're not seeing like the best works because like no and all that stuff is going to be gone in two years you see maybe in one year maybe in six months <laughs> some of it is gone tomorrow well yeah some <laughs> a, a previous guest said there will never be a museum of instagram so like you know that stuff is no. not going to stand the test of time i have the position now help me again correct me if i'm wrong on this but like my position is this, is basically an artist's reputation is only as good as their worst image. I don't know. I would say an artist becomes known with his best images and then the industry, whether it's the rep or the gallery or the museum or the family or the estate of the artist starts to uh, promote all the lesser work for years and years to come. In other words, somebody has a really fantastic piece of work and maybe a few more, and then they start to recycle all, everything else that they've ever done without any criticism, and I see a lot of that. 
what and that's something that sort of terrifies me about the future is when it comes that I pass away when somebody's going to come back and look at my catalog of images and then they're going to basically redefine and re or I'm I'm being horribly egotistical assuming that I'm worthy of that but let's say I am worthy of this that somebody's going to and look through all my images and they're going to like recontextualize and they're going to say like oh this image is better than that image even though like I chose the you know image A they're going to say oh but image B that's a much better image now for for his estate and for his his longevity and I'm like but I don't like it like so like that fear that I have of like my legacy basically being controlled by the wrong people you know yes I can appreciate that and you know Henri Cartier Rousseau was very careful of that he never allowed anybody to see his contact sheets Nobody was ever allowed to cut his images. He was very aware of that. And in the case of Ernst Haas, who died relatively young, a curator came along and created an exhibition at Arles with his work. And he took a whole new look at Ernst's work and he picked out the things that were most a new direction. He was definitely a very innovative photographer and some of his experimental work that had never been published was then picked out. His name is Ewing. I can't think of his first name now. Anyway, he was the um, director of the Musée d'Elysée in Lausanne for a long time and then he moved to publisher in London. Anyway, he uh, re-edited Ernst Haas's work and created a very different exhibition based on what he uh, considered his most contemporary work. And that and that difficulty of like recontextualizing something somebody after they're no longer around is you know a bit tough. In yes, it is a bit frightening, isn't it? <laughs> it is. On the other hand, there there are great examples of that being done well, which is like I had this. Uh, I think it was, it was Alfred Stieglitz when he went to when he passed away. He said, "Here, are my prints. They're already matted at these exact proportions and sizes in re, you know, relationship to the size and scale of the images." And he said, "I will donate to this museum, but you cannot cut." the mats they must stay exactly (laughs) and there was a certain museum i forget who it was i think it was moma that sort of turned it down because they were non-traditional sizes they were not they didn't fit 11 by 14 16 by 20 20 by 24 right and and so since they couldn't put them in like standard boxes they said we we, will cut the mats down if you don't donate to us to fit into these standards and he said forget it and he turned around and gave it to a different museum that said that they agreed not to cut the mats down I'm like, that, that's what I want to do. I want to have that kind of control. Well, you better put down your, your, your will right now in case you. <laughs> I know, seriously. But who knows? Who knows? What, what well, I'd love, I'd love to see some of your work sometime. <laughs> I will gladly send you my website. And, and I, I have a new idea about how to present my work. So we'll, we'll see how this all works out. I'm, I'm working on it. New new concepts sort of <laughs> going out there. Yeah. Yeah. But um, any last advice? Well, I think the website, you just mentioned that, is a terribly important thing. It's the face to the world 
I see a lot of very bad websites, bad designed websites and websites where you do not get any sense of the message of the artist. In other words, the creative identity is not visible. Uh, today, it is important. Yeah. Go back one second because you used a subjective word. You said bad websites. What is it that constitutes a bad website in your mind? Well, I'm talking in terms of design language, bad design, bad fonts, a hideous mix of things, a jumbled kind of thing where you go, oh, and one click and it's history. So bad color palettes as well. Yes. Yes. And uh, for instance, in France, what's very, very popular is black backgrounds. And then there's a jumble of images on this black background and you go, oh, what's this? Your mind cannot even focus on the images because it is such a contrast. So that's what I mean by badly designed websites. And as a photo editor, I've edited many, many books today. We call it curating. (laughs) But basically, you want each image to be framed in a way that it comes into its own. But by combining images, you can lose the impact of each image. So it's very important how you mix and match and how you put together the website. Okay, I'm going to get really pedantic with it, though. So like when you're putting together a website of let's say as a photographer and you're putting let's say you put up a a page that just is a series of work one series of work do you put up the whole series no matter how many pictures are in the series or do you have like a number that you say like no more than this well each subject may tell me how much is enough but really you don't overload the patience of your audience And basically, people have very, very short attention spans, and you lose the audience by overloading it with lots of text or lots of images. Uh, Yeah, And basically, I do know that a lot of artists are not sure which are the strongest images. They have images that are their pet images, and they are ultimately not the strongest images. So... (laughs) there was that subject. Well, I mean, and that's a great subject to sort of try and finish this up, but like, it's a great subject because like, how do you know which one's your best image? Well, you don't sometimes because your, your emotions are tied up with the moment when you took the picture and it's not about the result. It's about the process that you were in. Agreed. Yes, I've been guilty of this as as much myself because like sometimes it's the day when you were out taking the picture, like everything went well. It was a lovely day. This person that I'm photographing was very nice. And so you think the photo is beautiful, but it's maybe not the most beautiful. Or I have the one also like I spent a year making this. My God, this better be my best. Yes, because I spent so long creating this. Right. It's not your best. Exactly. And sometimes an artist will look back at their work years later and find very different images as the best ones. All the time. And that's a little bit like 
somebody like me coming in and say, these are the strongest as I see it. So it changes over time. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It was a delightful conversation. And I wish we had more time to talk about your work. (laughs) Before you leave, we would like to thank you for listening all the way through the entire episode. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anybody with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community, not only today, but for the future, is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.